0: The idea that unvaccinated players could come into town and as long as you're a road team play, but home players, it, it was just really inconsistent from the start. And uh, I think the recognition of that helped push this thing through. The
1: New York City private sector
0: vaccine mandate that there'll be the necessary changes, perhaps
1: in the near future, that would allow Kyrie Irving to return.
2: ESPN Radio.
1: The Brooklyn Nets have nine games left. Kyrie Irving can play in all of them. This is ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, and on ESPN+. Plus. ESPN Radio is presented to you by Progressive Insurance. I'm Amber Wilson. He's Chris Canty. You can tweet to us at ChrisCanty99, at AmberW790. So the vaccine mandate in New York City... Uh, that affected the private sector, which was keeping Kyrie Irving off of his home court has been lifted by the mayor of New York city, Eric Adams. And, We had gotten the report 48 hours ago that maybe this was a possibility or 24 hours ago that maybe this was a possibility and it started gaining more momentum. But 48 hours ago, Eric Adams, frankly, had a different tune when we heard from him where he said that professional athletes are going to have to wait their turn. Well, just 48 hours later, he talked about equaling the playing field for performers and for professional athletes. And of course, this isn't just about Kyrie Irving, Chris. This is also about the New York Yankees. They'll be able to be out there in full with their entire roster when their season starts. But effectively, this has become the Kyrie Irving story because it means that now down the stretch here and headed into these playoffs, he'll be able to play night in and night out. And that is huge for the Brooklyn Nets.
2: No doubt, Amber. It absolutely is. The Brooklyn Nets have to be considered one of the favorites in the Eastern Conference, if not the favorite, to be able to win the conference and get to the NBA Finals. But we actually have to take inventory and actually look at what happened. Kyrie Irving stared down the Brooklyn Nets when they took a hardline stance on him not being vaccinated, saying that they weren't going to tolerate a part-time player. They moved off of that position and allowed Kyrie Irving to play in road games. Kyrie Irving took a hard-line stance with the city of New York and Mayor Eric Adams is saying, I'm not going to get vaccinated. I'm going to stand rooted, and I quote from Kyrie Irving, and what ended up happening? The New York City mayor ended up rolling back the private sector vaccine mandate that applied to Kyrie Irving and other athletes, entertainers, and performers so he could play in those games. So this individual, Kyrie Irving, decided that he was going to have this stance and he wasn't going to move off for anybody, and everybody has essentially acquiesced to exactly what he wanted, which was to allow him to be a full-time player for the Brooklyn Nets without being vaccinated. Now, we acknowledge the hypocrisy in the way that the rule, the mandate was written which allowed opposing teams, opposing players that were unvaccinated to come into Barclays, to come into New York City and play games, while the players that reside in New York City couldn't. I can understand why they tried to roll that out there and say that as as a means to try to motivate everybody or incentivize everybody to get vaccinated. But it was a rule on on its face that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And we've started seeing momentum building toward this point over the course of the last month and a half, whether it's Adam Silver, Right before the NBA All Star Weekend, saying that the rule didn't make much sense to him. We saw what Kevin Durant said uh, after one of the post games, um, it, it, where they, you know Kyrie Irving wasn't allowed to play. There was that frustration. He went at Mayor Eric Adams. More people started talking about it, and ultimately, the New York City Mayor decided to pivot from his position. When just two days ago, he said that you know they were going to have to wait their turn until that layer in the city's progression and reopening was 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 available to to be evaluated and so i'm surprised that we got here so quickly because it seemed like eric adams was was so strongly entrenched in his position at the beginning of the week but after lobbying from yankees president randy levine and others they got the mayor to realize the value proposition and having individuals like kyrie Irving or having select players on the yankees and the mets be available because of the income or the, the revenue that they generate by being able to play. And I think the mayor mentioned it in his comments. He said, one playoff game, you're talking about millions of dollars being generated in revenue for the city. That's something that you have to consider. So although it feels like the mayor has a little bit of egg on his face, I think he ultimately came to the right decision. And now we're talking about the Brooklyn Nets being one of those teams that nobody wants to face off with in the first round.
1: And the landscape of the way that things are in the city has changed dramatically since this rule was instituted. I don't know if it ever made much sense how it was written, but certainly the number of cases, those sorts of things have changed quite dramatically. Mm -hmm. So Eric Adams certainly changed his stance, but it does feel a bit like he changed his stance overnight because of what we heard him say just 48 hours ago. Nevertheless, this is an emergency order he puts in place. Kyrie Irving comes out the big winner here. We'll see if it amounts to actual wins on the court, but here was Eric Adams saying that this was not just about a couple athletes.
3: First of all, we're not talking about a handful of, uh, of athletes, and I think this is the narrative that is, is unfortunate on what we're putting out there. I know struggling singers. I know struggling performers. Uh, we look at one or two athletes, and we're not realizing the entire industry. We're part of a financial ecosystem that includes uh, our nightlife, Performance artists, any entertainer, we created an unfair disadvantage to New York-based performers. I'm correcting that unfair disadvantage, and I'm doing it at the appropriate time when our numbers are low, and it's the right thing to do. But so it Amber, certainly...
2: it's not like he didn't realize that that unfair disadvantage was existing. Like, we all knew that that was a problem. This is not something adva- that all of a sudden people started pointing out a couple of days ago. This is something that people have been pointing out for months. So as far as Eric Adams is concerned with the spin on this one, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense because this is something that had been highlighted going back to January, the hypocrisy of the rule. It just didn't make any sense in terms of protecting the public interest and keeping people actually safe.
1: It has been an about-face for Eric Adams. It has been. But it results in Kyrie Irving, of course, now being available to the Brooklyn Nets. So they've got nine games left. Seven of those he would not have been available for. He's now going to be available. We saw them lose last night to the Grizz when he was available. So the Nets are going to have to do more. And then we get into a postseason where unless they're playing the Raptors, Chris, he's going to be available for every single game. How much pressure does this put now on Steve Nash?
2: I think it puts a ton of pressure on Steve Nash. Because there's no reason why this team can't contend for a title. And everybody wants to point to Ben Simmons, but, I mean, listen, Ben Simmons hasn't been available for this team, and you have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. When you start talking about the offensive players in today's game, I would have to say two of the top ten offensive players in the NBA. So I I just – I don't know how we couldn't put pressure on Steve Nash in order to help this team contend for a title and at least deliver on this team being able to get to the NBA finals. Anything short of that – I think it's fair to absolutely criticize Steve Nash. He's the one in all of this, Amber, that has gotten the pass the last couple of years. And and I don't know how that happened, how that evolved, but this team has fallen short of expectations that everybody placed on them since they got the original big three with James Harden, Kyrie, and KD together. And yet, it feels like everybody's coming up with all these different excuses or reasons to point to other than the head coach not consistently putting his players in the best positions, not having his rotations buttoned up, all of those different things, not having a game plan, especially when it comes to being able to get the the best players, the ball in their spot so they can do what they do best. Like those are all things that are fair to criticize from Steve Nash. He hasn't done those things consistently. And so now when you eliminate the excuse of not having Kyrie Irving, I think that absolutely puts Steve Nash front and center in terms of being able to help this team deliver on the promise that KD and Kyrie said they would when they decided to come to Brooklyn in free agency.
1: Well, he hasn't just skated in terms of game plan. Now, given with all the rotations he's had to go through and with only having Kyrie on a part-time basis and finding any continuity there, it's been difficult for him and then having to pivot away from James Harden midseason. But he did skate a bit, even on that James Harden situation, even with Harden becoming disgruntled, not being able to manage that, none of that seemed to fall on the shoulders of Steve Nash. At some point here, something has to fall on the shoulders of Steve Nash. Now, he's going not to not have Ben Simmons at scene. Teams. Ben Simmons has a ruptured disc in his bag. It feels like we're not going to see him the rest of the regular season. It feels like, frankly, we're not going to see him in the postseason either. They really need that defensive help, but they haven't had Ben Simmons all season long. So I'm not sure that's an excuse, Chris, if they can't get anything done here. I saw Kevin Durant almost make a finals last season by his darn self. And Mm -hmm. if he can be out there by his darn self and almost do it, then he can be out there with Kyrie Irving and do it as well, even if defensively they're not elite like maybe they would be if Ben Simmons was out there to help with that picture. So I agree with you. At some point here, the attention turns to Steve Nash. I just wonder if these changes came so late in the season that that pressure doesn't quite ramp up yet. Coming up next, could Tyreek Hill actually be more productive in Miami than he was in Kansas City? That's next. This is ESPN Radio.
3: ESPN Radio. The latest NFL blockbuster trade. The Kansas City Chiefs are sending Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins. This is now the fastest wide receiver duo in NFL history. I think the pressure is ramped up as high as you can put it onto a tongue of our Lord.
0: Why would you sit there
2: and give up this quarterback and that coach with that franchise when they're in a championship game every year to go sit there with a quarterback who can't get the ball to you and Tua. My
0: reaction is just like everybody else's, very unexpected, but great for the Dolphins.
1: I get unreasonably happy when I hear Chris Russo's voice, but not when he's talking about how Tua cannot get the ball to his receivers. This is ESPN Radio. Amber Wilson and Chris Candy. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Save on commercial auto insurance from Progressive. Get a fast quote at ProgressiveCommercial.com. So, Chris, I know you have your concerns as well as Chris Russo in terms of Tua Tungvaloa as a quarterback. Now he's throwing the ball to Tyreek Hill. The Mm -hmm. cheetah. He's at least got the speed. He's got the speed all over the place because Waddle's got the speed as well. Tyreek Hill, he was introduced, of course, as a new wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins. So he had a press conference and he reminded us that Tua is one of the most accurate quarterbacks out there.
3: Tua is one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the NFL, man. So just his ball placement, you know, getting us the ball in space, you know, perfect placement, you know, and us just utilizing our speed, you know, um, utilizing our best asset, you know, and that's just being dangerous. I do think- They pay that
2: man $30 million a year. He has to say that about the incumbent starter, doesn't he? No, but it's
1: true, though. The accuracy is true. He ain't lying about the accuracy, Chris. The problem is, can Tua air it out down the field? But I do wonder if the brilliance here of Mike McDaniel and Chris Greer is bringing in the speed because then he doesn't have to. Like, if if he dinks and dunks it to Tyreek Hill, Tyreek can do everything else.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're right about that. And the vertical threat Um, that Tyreek Hill is having that speed element in your offense is going to open up underneath routes for Mike Gusecki, for Jalen Waddle, for Devontae Parker. So there'll be opportunities for that as well as Raheem Mostert and Chase Edmonds as receivers out of the backfield. There will be more opportunities for guys to get the ball in space in the short and intermediate zones. And that seems like that's the sweet spot for Tua. So it'll be interesting to see how they deploy him. But and hearing some of the comments from Tyreek Hill, I'm not quite sure that Mike McDaniel is going to use him the way that Tyreek Hill is trying to lead us to believe.
1: Well, we know what Mike McDaniel has done uh, in the past and how he has used his quarterback in Jimmy Garoppolo, aside uh, when he was alongside Kyle Shanahan in that offense. So maybe Tua doesn't have to be the best quarterback on planet Earth for them to still be very productive. Here was Tyreek Hill on playing with Mike McDaniel.
3: My biggest thing is, like, his whole message off the field, man. Tyreek, just be you, man. He kind of sounded like Shrek a little bit. He was like, just be you, Reed. Just be you, Reed. And that's all I can ask for, man. I, I coach to have my back off the field, man. So he went to bat for me, and I know every all 90 guys on this roster are going to go to bat, even though I know 90 can't be on there. But, you know, everybody going to go to bat for him. So excited to play for the guy, man.
2: <laughs> Amber, I'm laughing because we had the same exact reaction when we heard Tyreek Hill say Mike McDaniel told him to just be him. We both cringed and said, is that what we really want to see from Tyreek Hill down to South Beach? Maybe we should have phrased that a little bit differently. We want you to be the best version of yourself because Tyreek Hill has not proven himself to be a model citizen. And you don't go and have some kind of reform and stand on a moral compass when you go down to South Beach. So let's hope that the $30 million and the change of scenery brings out the best version of Tyreek Hill in this situation.
1: Tyreek Hill has a very ugly past, uh, and – certainly off the field, uh, Tyreek Hill is not a model citizen. Now on the field of course, we know that Tyreek Hill has the speed, he's the fastest receiver in the league and so there was a huge market for Tyreek Hill when the Chiefs uh, gave him permission to start seeking trades and the Chiefs found themselves in this situation because listen, you can't pay every single person on your roster top dollar. Tyreek Hill was going to, to command that and that top dollar got a lot bigger once Devontae Adams reset the market and the Chiefs essentially could not afford Tyreek Hill at the price that he was asking. And so they said, we want to get something for you. Go find a trade. They got a lot of somethings for him. They got five picks. Oof. The New York Jets were also willing to give up a haul. Apparently... Not the first, or not the first, like the Miami was, but they were willing to give up a bunch as well. Now, if the Jets had given up a first rounder, it would have been what the eighth pick or the sixth pick. Where are the They've Jets? They've got four in
2: this? and ten. They've got yeah. Four okay, and ten. so I
1: mean, yeah. you're not giving up either of those for Tyreek Hill, anyway. Yeah. So that's part of this equation. But here was Tyreek Hill on how well and how much he actually considered the Jets.
3: How close was I? Who? The Jets. I oh, know, nah, man. Look, man, it's, it's a lot. of... I, I don't even want to get into all that. I knew I was going to pick Miami no matter what, man.
1: So he says he was going to pick Miami no matter what. I will say Drew Rosenhaus is out here publicly saying a very different tune. Now, I would imagine from the agent's perspective, he doesn't want to look like he ran up the price on Tyreek Hill and did yep. a whole lot of bluffing.
2: Yeah, I'm sure the agent doesn't want to do that. But when you compare the two franchises, I mean, they both aren't the model for functionality. So I, I just I look at it and... You know, this is Tyreek Hill monetizing his happiness. He's already got a Super Bowl ring, so now it's a situation where you want to cash in and get paid on this side of 30, and so I think it's a situation where he went for top dollar, and I don't blame him because he's one of the most dangerous weapons in the National Football League, and with the New York Jets in their facility and playing in New Jersey, you're talking about avoiding 10.75% on state income tax by going to Miami, which is an income tax-free state. So I, I can understand that that $30 million on average annual value, is gonna, you're going to see a lot more of that money down there in Miami versus if you were playing in East Rutherford, New Jersey. So I, I can't blame Tyreek Hill for making that choice. I do have question marks about both franchises. So if, in a matter of speaking, I, I don't think that Tyree, Tyreek Hill made a bad choice in this situation. I, I just don't know that he's going to be happy in the way of winning like he was when he was with the Chiefs
1: life is good down here in Florida in that income tax regard and Tyreek Hill reportedly already has a house down here so maybe that factors into the equation as well coming up we pivot to March madness will Texas Tech be the team that ends coach K's last dance that's next this is ESPN radio with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty
3: ESPN radio the madness continues
0: Westwood 1, NCAA Radio Network. It's
2: over. Mike Sushevski and the two Blue Devils headed to San Francisco and the Sweet 16 will knock off Michigan State, 85 to 76. This is ESPN Radio.
1: Could Coach Kay's historic career end tonight? This is ESPN Radio presented to you by Progressive Insurance. We haven't gotten to talk March Madness yet on today's show, and the Sweet 16 starts tonight, so we will get some madness. To talk all things March Madness, we turn to the guest line where we find ESPN college basketball analyst Dallin Cuff. And Dallin, first of all, thanks for joining us because I know we've had to reschedule you multiple times this week because of all the NFL breaking news this week, so I'm thrilled to finally get to talk some hoops with you here the story of March Madness so far has been none other than the St. Peter's Peacocks. The 15th seed will take on Purdue tomorrow night. Is it possible we're going to get this story with the Peacocks even longer?
0: Uh, I don't think it is. I will say this real quick. I mean, Tom Brady started it off on Selection Sunday, just that NFL is going to continue to rain on our parade in college basketball. And It's rolled through, so it's been, a, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Uh, but St. Peter's, they've had a phenomenal um, Phenomenal tournament, to say the least. And I do think people talk about them in relation to Murray State. At the end of that game, uh, there were some great out of timeout plays. That Sheen Holloway ran. And, and I think people love to talk about, wow, that's great coaching. Great coaching. It is. The coaching job he did outside of that, really, the last 10 minutes was outstanding. It was the preparation from game to game that was most impressive about what St. Peters' is complete, what they did in that weekend. Not just beating Kentucky, but Murray State, the last 10 minutes, Murray State's going from 1 3 1 to 2 3 to man to man, mixed up defenses. His team did not miss a beat. The guards diagnosed it immediately. They snapped them what they wanted to run. If it's 2-3, we're going to attack in the middle. If it's 1-3-1, one, one, they were attacking on the baseline, on the short corners. It was man-to-man. They were just run their stuff. And that takes, that's, that's coaching, that's preparation, then that's execution, that's communication. That is a, looks like a well-oiled machine. And conversely, on the other side, when they switch up defenses late in the game, Murray State was on their heels. And that's why you do that, to t- take the rhythm away from a team and to shock the, other, the opponent. They were never shocked. They were in complete control. It was an outstanding performance in both of those games. That's it. Purdue has Zach Eady, who's seven foot four and almost three hundred pounds. Trayvon Williams is six foot ten and you know, two hundred fifty pounds, the best passing big man in the country. And they have Jaden 90, possibly probably a top three pick. It's just the, the, the size and the physicality of the interior. I just don't know what Saint Peter's is going to do. I, it's almost like I don't care how good the coaching is, how they double, where they double, when they double. It has to come at some point. And then it's one of the best three point shooting teams in the country. In Purdue, um, I, I just don't see how they win this game. The spread is twelve and a half. And all honesty, I'd be surprised if they cover the spread. Now, that said, I had Kentucky winning. and I'm going to the championship game. Obviously, Shane Peters was an afterthought. So, clearly, I can be wrong here. But I've <laughs> I, I really struggled to see how they fit against the Purdue team.
2: Dallin, we saw in the first weekend of the tournament a number one seed in that very same East region get knocked off, Baylor losing to North Carolina in that overtime thriller. Looking at the Sweet 16, we still got three one seeds that are out there. Which one would you say is the most vulnerable with their upcoming matchup?
0: Uh, it is about the matchup, and it's Arizona. I mean, I have Arizona winning it all. I've been stuck to talking about them since January when they were 15-1 to 1 to win the tournament, and I took that in the futures bet, and I've loved what they've done. That said, I mean, Houston, if they didn't have Marcus Sasser and, and Tremont Mark, if they weren't hurt, Chris, we'd be talking about Houston as a national championship team. And they might be a one-seed if those dudes aren't hurt. Those, that's how good those two dudes are. And Marcus Sasser's one of the best 15-20 players in the country, probably. And they haven't had him since January, and they're not coming back. So they've adjusted the way they played, but they still have not adjusted anything more defensively. They're an elite defensive team. Uh, one of the top, top five teams in adjusted defensive efficiency. They're one of the top five in offensive rebounding percentage. Conversely, Arizona, as you saw with TCU and you've seen throughout the year, they don't clean up their glass a lot. And when you don't clean up your glass, that's to give your, not just to give your opponent second-chance points, but for Arizona, a team that loves to have the tempo in the top ten in the country, and for Houston, who plays in the bottom 30 in the country in pace, you've got to get the rebound first, Chris, before you can push the ball. Yeah. And if Arizona can't get clean rebounds, they can't get out and push the tempo, they can't play at a tempo they like, they could be in for a half-court slugfest with a team that that's what they want to do. So I really think that um, I love Arizona's team, but I think Houston is capable of winning that game. Just as I think, you know, I would, I would argue Providence is capable of beating Kansas. I don't think it's likely. I think Arkansas is capable of giving Gonzaga quite a game, more than the 10-point or 9.5-point spread would suggest, but I don't think they beat them. I do think I would not be surprised at all if Houston moves forward uh, after playing Arizona tonight or tomorrow.
1: ESPN College basketball analyst Dallin Cuff joining us. UNC got the upset, made their way, of course, to the Sweet 16. Already a more successful season than Roy Williams last season, considering that they are under a first-year head coach, even though we're talking about one of the most major blue-blood programs. If things end here for UNC, would you already grade this as a successful season?
0: That's a great question, because in all honesty, Amber, I had I had them win in the ACC preseason. Um, I thought they had the talent to, to win the tournament, win, win the ACC regular season, and be more of a force nationally. Um, what I didn't anticipate, and I know what Hubert didn't anticipate either, was as talented as this team is, and you guys know this, you got to have, there are intangible factors. There's leadership, there's toughness, there's belief, there's a desire to win your punch, punched back. And North Carolina had not shown that the entire year. They got throttled by Tennessee, beat up by Purdue, destroyed by Kentucky, crushed by Miami maimed by Wake Forest. I'm running out of adjectives. And every time when they got popped, they never fought back in those games. They just got destroyed until we saw them play against Duke at Cameron in the final regular season game. They were down nine in the late first half. They closed at two. They dominate the second half. They punched back. They win. Against Baylor, when that thing went to overtime, I thought for sure, this is a wrap. Baylor's not just winning. They're going to cover. They're taking me to cover city. They're going to win by six. We're good. No, that, that was not the case. They, they fought back. So I think what, the, the season maybe not be looked at as a as a success because I think they have the talent above what they've achieved but what they can achieve still is ahead of them they're not out of this tournament and they're capable obviously capable of beating UCLA and I do think foul trouble can't they can't get in foul trouble they have a limited bench Jaime Hawkins if he's fully healthy for UCLA that is a that's an important factor tonight we'll see about that uh can Armando Baycott score in the interior consistently and how does UCLA handle Brady Manick? are they just going to switch all those one through four screens are they going to not allow him to have any pick-and-pop action, which is probably the best way I think they're going to go. I think it's a great matchup between two teams that can really score, that defensively at times aren't uh, that adept, it should lead to a fun game, and a game which either team can win. It really is a coin flip to me. So they, even if they lose tonight, I'm not sure it'll be – I think we all know Huber can coach. I think we wonder who on that team is coming back is an important question. But I, I, it's, it's hard to say whether it's a success or failure because their expectations were so high. But at some point during this year, they were on the bubble, maybe not making the tournament. So where they're at now seems like an uptick from that point.
2: Talking with ESPN College basketball analyst Dallin Cuff on ESPN Radio. And Dallin, we've seen the Big Ten Conference struggle in the early going in the tournament, but I think most people would characterize what we're seeing from Michigan as an improbable run to the Sweet 16. How surprised are you that Jawan Howard and his group have gotten this far in the tournament?
0: Shocked because of who they're playing, uh, who they played Tennessee. And I think because Tennessee was playing like one of the best teams in the country. And we can X and O things all day long. But Tennessee, you gotta make shots. They didn't make shots in the Michigan. Sometimes you credit Michigan with the defense. A lot of it was Tennessee was open and didn't make plays. This is a young Michigan team, mind you. you know The last two this is a third straight year. Juan Howard's had them in the in the Sweet Sixteen. He's done a phenomenal job, you know, you know, outside of the slapping a great guard or whatever, mushing him in the face. That's not good stuff. And they handled that. But he's done a phenomenal job in terms of coaching his guys, and that's a young group. Now with this team today, they're going to play through Hunter Dickinson, and they, they're they playing on a team on the other side that is not young, that is old, that the culture is one of the best, if not the best in college basketball in Villanova, has one of the best leaders in Colin Gillespie, and knows exactly who they are and how to win. So there is no question what they want to do. It's a question about Michigan. Can they get the ball inside the Hunter Dickinson on time, on target, when he needs it, where he gets it before he gets pushed off the block or before he gets impatient and steps off the block? Can they handle any ball pressure to keep the ball so that we can mitigate their ability to put it in the post, get those younger players to feed it to him? play through him, and then defensively, can they guard their yard? Can they find a way to to contest and run Villanova up a three-point line? Can they take Gillespie out of the post? There's a lot of ifs here for a young team and a big spot against a proven team and a really proven coach, not that Juwan is not. It's just a very, very very tough matchup. I think of all the games – if Michigan wins this game, I would be most surprised. Not because the spread is the biggest, because I think it still could be a close game. It's different to compete with these guys in Villanova than to beat them and to, take, to knock them off when you have a lot of inexperienced guys, and obviously Devontae Jones still figuring out his full health situation given his issues the first two games, uh, one of their best players, one of their best guards. So there's, there's, there's a number of factors where I feel like Villanova should win this game. But that said, that's why they play the game. As cliche as that is, they can do it uh, because Hunter Dickinson is a mountain of a man and is a big problem. And if he has the major impact on this game, they have a chance of upsetting him. But it is going to be a really difficult game because of how Villanova plays and what they do day in and day out.
1: You're not giving me much confidence in these double-digit seeds here, Dallin. Dallin Cuff, ESPN College Basketball Analyst um, with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty here on ESPN Radio. Finally here on the way out in the Sweet 16, who do you think is going to become the breakout star? Who should we have our eyes on?
3: Well, Amber,
0: you didn't ask me about Miami and Iowa State. I'll give you a a double-digit seed there. I can't lose, so I'm good at 10 versus 11. Um, But I would say the breakout star it may not be individually, but I do think Texas Tech is going to win tonight. I do think Texas Tech beats Gonzaga. I think they go to the Final Four, Mark Adams' first year as head coach there. Um, and I do think people will may- maybe maybe know some more names of their players, maybe know Bryson Williams, Kevin O'Banner. People remember him from Oral Roberts last year. Uh, T.J. Shannon's one of their best scorers, Kevin McCullough. Maybe those names pop, but it's more of a collective – Oh, this Texas Tech program is for real. I think might be what people take away. Their ability to defend, the first in the nation defensive efficiency. They are physical. How the tournament's been refereed. There's been a lot let go that benefits the Red Raiders. They're playing a Duke team that's never seen a defense like this all year. That has a lot of young players, whereas the Red Raiders have 22 to 23 and 24 year olds. So I do think this will be this could be a massive platform for Texas Tech. You are playing potentially in Coach K's last game. The eyes of the country in terms of sports are going to be on this game tonight. It's a late-tip East Coast time, but I feel like a lot of people are tuning in. You know, I mean, You wouldn't be surprised if you have over 10 million people watching that game. And if Texas Tech wins, which I think they will, and has a chance to then go play Gonzaga, who is basically in the last 10 years, they've won more tournament games than anybody. And Mark Few is one of the best coaches in the business, Future Hall of Famer, another major platform for them. If they get themselves to the Final Four now, this year I think will be even more of a stamp on that program and kind of an eye-opener to the rest of college basketball and casual sports fans. Then when they went in 2009 and bear in mind lost a great championship game to UVA, that may have seemed like an aberration. I think this is a chance for their arrival, given their opponents, given the quality of how they play, and given the opportunity ahead of them. And I think they capitalize on
1: it. So you heard it here. Dallin Cuff says Coach K's historic career is ending tonight. Dallin, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Anytime, guys. Have a good one.
1: ESPN College basketball analyst Dallin Cuff was brought to you by Wendy's Breakfast, the official breakfast of March Madness. Coming up next, we have an update on John Morant's injury status. So how long will the Grizzlies star be out? That's next. This is ESPN Radio.
3: Tomorrow on ESPN Radio. Now that Tom Brady has unretired,
2: preparing for his upcoming season has drastically changed for head coach Bruce Arians. He joins Harry Douglas and Amber Wilson to talk about his relationship with Brady and the huge changes around the NFL this offseason. Bruce Arians, tomorrow at 4.30 Eastern on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio.
1: Some breaking news in the NBA, and it's in regards to one of the biggest stars' injury status. And I don't mean CP3, who is coming back tonight, but I'm talking about Ja Morant. He missed last night's game against the Brooklyn Nets. No jaw, no problem. Well, Chris, they're going to need more of that magic. Grizzlies star John Morant is going to miss at least the next two weeks due to knee soreness that has sidelined him for recent games. That's per his coach Taylor Jenkins. The Grizzlies are 15-2 and this season without Morant in the lineup. There is a whole school of thought, by the way, that the Grizzlies are better without John Morant. I-, I don't know where these people live, but I'm telling you, they exist in the world. On Twitter, you can find them. So I guess for that crowd right now, maybe this is a win. Uh, they did win, like I mentioned, a against the Brooklyn Nets team that had both KD and Kyrie without Ja Moran, So maybe they'll be okay here down the stretch for these last nine games.
2: Well, yeah, I'm not going to bet against the Memphis Grizzlies. And the fact that three of those games are on the road. I feel good about this group being able to stay in the, the position that they're in in the Western Conference standings because we know that role players play better at home than they do on the road. So I'm fairly confident that Taylor Jenkins will find a way to navigate around this. This team these guys believe in what they're doing and they play together. So I don't worry about John ja Morant in terms of how that impacts what the Grizzlies do down the stretch in the regular season. The only concern that I have is about what version of Ja Morant we're going to get in the postseason, Amber. Because we both know the style of play changes when you get to the NBA playoffs. Just like in any other professional sports league, once you get to the playoffs – the game gets a little tighter. The game is refereed differently. Um, the players defensively lock in a little bit tougher. It's just I, I don't know that the Memphis Grizzlies are going to be able to make any kind of run if they don't have job Morant healthy and available and able to do the things that we've come to know and love about his game. Being that explosive athlete, being able to create for himself and for others, being able to push the pace for this team, um, getting them up and down the court in transition, if they don't have that, then that's going to significantly hinder what they're capable of doing against the better teams in the conference.
1: The Grizzlies are obviously very capable of winning without Ja Morant. They're going to need to keep winning because the Warriors are three games behind them in the standings. They've got nine games left down the stretch of the season. The problem for the Grizzlies is that they've got one of the hardest schedules down the stretch in the entire NBA. They're going to see the likes of the Bucks and the Warriors and the Suns and the Jazz and the Nuggets and the Celtics. And so it's not going to be an easy run for them without Ja Morant there in order to help them so this seems like a problem down the stretch for the regular season but again it's just the regular season And as long as John Morant and Morant is back for the playoffs that's what's really going to matter here in terms of Memphis's success
3: espn radio
1: we are wrapping things up here on espn radio amber wilson and chris canty big shout out to all the guests that have joined us on today's show it has been an action-packed day Erin dolan she helped us sort out all of the betting that has changed with all of the wild breaking news across the nba and the nfl this week she of course is espn's sports betting analyst Field Yates joined us. He discussed all things NFL with us, ESPN's NFL Insider. He is also the co-host of the First Draft podcast. And Dallin Cuff, he was so kind to join us after we had rescheduled him multiple times this week because (laughs) of all the crazy breaking NFL news. We finally got to Sweet 16 Talk just in time because, of course, the Sweet 16 tips off tonight. He is ESPN's college basketball analyst. And now it is time, Chris Canty, to go down the or to go three and out.
2: Hey. Hey. Sometimes it's the worst. Sometimes it's the best. Either way, we'll get you straight with everything you need to know. This is three and
0: out.
1: This is three and out. That's what I said. Everybody listen up. This is three and out. Now, Chris Canty, the Phoenix Suns haven't had Chris Paul since February. He got ejected. He got hurt. We kind of saw him in the All-Star game, but not really. He had a wrap on the hand. Well, now we're actually going to see him against the Denver Nuggets tonight, it looks like. Since Paul was hurt, the Suns are 11-4, and so they've been doing just fine without CP3. But now, of course, they get one of their stars back. They are easily the best team sitting at the very top of the West. Nobody can touch them.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're nine games. Uh, in front of the next closest team, and that being the Memphis Grizzlies. So, yeah, the the Phoenix Suns don't have anything to worry about until they get into postseason. And even with that, they really don't have anything to worry about until they get to round two. So, Chris Paul getting back and having an opportunity to get some games under his belt and get his conditioning down right before the playoffs start is a plus. I think that's exactly why Monty Williams is choosing to go this route and and put him out there. They, they, They seem to be fully confident that he's healed, that thumb injury is fixed. So they're not going to be worried about that going into the playoffs. This has to be about just making sure they get his legs up underneath him so that Chris Paul can be the best version of himself once we get to the postseason. Because for the Suns, it's about competing for championships. And so everything that they're doing right now, sharpening up their skills, making sure everybody is ready to go and feeling great about their game, those are the decisions that they're making down the stretch. So obviously, CP3, he's put the injury behind him. The biggest question I have, Amber... Is can he keep the injuries behind him? Or are we going to be talking about a CP3 injury in the playoffs at the most inopportune time?
1: Yeah, you said that they must be confident that he's completely healed, and I thought in my head when you said that, how could you ever be confident that CP3 is completely healed from any hand injury in particular? We know yeah. those have plagued him throughout his career, and at 36 years old, that seems to be a problem for him, but listen, he is averaging 14.9 points and 10.7 assists for the Suns. They could absolutely use his help, even though we're talking about a team coming into tonight with a 59 and 14 record. They have done dominated the regular season, but they need CP three to actually get it done in the postseason, And they will apparently have his services. So good from some good news there. If you're a Phoenix suns fan, the 2023 NFL draft is going to be held in Kansas city. What is your reaction to this? Chris?
2: Uh, I love it. I love the NFL moving the draft around. It creates interest in other marketplaces and for forever in a day, the NFL had the draft in New York City at Radio City Music Hall. But I think them making an event in cities like Cleveland and like Chicago and this year in Las Vegas, I think that's really cool. It's, it's like they're taking one of the marquee signature events from the NFL calendar and they're giving all of the different fan bases around the league a chance to experience it. I think it's, it's awesome that the NFL is considering doing this and that they're putting it in Kansas City. I'm pretty sure that the Kansas City Chiefs fans are hoping that they're talking about raising another banner when they have the NFL draft in 2023 there around that time. But, um, yeah, I think it's great for the NFL. I think it's awesome in terms of being able to continue to sell their entertainment product and switching it up a little bit and letting different markets have the opportunity to host those marquee events.
1: I think it's really, really cool for the NFL fan. I think it's cool to take the show on the road and, like you said, be more inclusive of all of the markets and not just the really big-time markets. I do wonder, if you're a draft prospect, are you more disappointed about going to Kansas City than you are about going to New York City? Nope,
2: nope, because you're getting drafted and you're about to make millions of dollars, Amber. There's no way. If you're That's one true. of those guys good that gets day way. invited to the draft, you don't get, if the draft is in Alaska, it don't matter. You're going to be there with a suit on, and you're going to shake Roger Goodell's hand, and you're going to be excited for whatever team is giving you a job and giving you that signing bonus.
1: You know what? Good good point out of you because you could then buy a plane ticket to New York City if you want to go visit there New York go. City. Drake go. has pledged $1 million to LeBron's Promise School This is a very, very cool move by Drake, obviously a very cool move by LeBron that his foundation founded that public school in the Promise School in Akron, Ohio years ago.
2: Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, 535 students at the Promise Academy, they have a food pantry, they have a GED program for the parents of the students, and they have legal support. So those are all the different services that LeBron James offers at the Promise Academy and for Drake to recognize that and to invest in it, I think it's an awesome moment for the culture.
1: That is a heck of an investment. Shout out to Drake. Also, shout out to Spain and Fitz. They're coming up next here on ESPN Radio. This has been Amber Wilson and Chris Canty. Thanks for joining us.